News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, a special series focusing on leading through uncertain times, exploring qualities, tools, tactics, and mindset government executives may need to navigate unsettling times and transform order out of chaos. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. Being adaptable and flexible have always been a hallmark of effective leadership. But how can government leaders see constant change as an opportunity and not a threat? How can fostering a flux mindset help leaders be more effective and resilient in the face of relentless uncertainty? And what strategies can leaders employ to achieve a flux mindset? I will explore these questions and much more with April Rinney, author of Flux, Eight Superpowers for Thriving in Constant Change. April, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you, Michael. I'm delighted to be here. So uh, have you on to discuss your book, Flux, Eight Superpowers for Thriving in Constant Change. I was wondering, you know, humans really struggle with change, especially change we do not choose. Given your research, why is that the case? Yeah, it's a, it's a great sort of trillion dollar question, I think, to start off with. So let's go big. Um, it's very interesting. So my book is really about our relationship to change. And I think this is um, a theme we'll be coming back to again and again. But we often think of change as like this almost a one-size-fits-all thing. It's, it's one word, change. And yet change is really complicated and it's really messy and it's really many different flavors and colors. And, you know, there are changes that we love as humans, new adventures, new relationships, new experiences. There are changes we hate. And this is to your question, changes we hate. Those are the changes we didn't expect. Those are the ones that are unwelcome. Those are the ones that truly feel and are beyond our control. And we don't like those changes because I guess you can think of it at a certain basic level as fundamental human nature. Um, we want to survive. Survival often means familiarity, even if it's subpar. It means predictability. It means status quo because you're alive in the status quo and you may not be if it changes. And I'm using the term survival broadly. But what's interesting is as we're in a world where there just seems to be more change, a faster pace of change, change all around, you know, before you've responded or reacted to one change, something else has hit. We really struggle with that. We just, it, it's human nature to be thrown off balance. And that's not a bad thing. That's kind of how we've adapted. As I like to say, like the only reason we're here today is because of change. But the challenge we face is that more and more, there's, there's more change on many different metrics, but there is more change that is beyond our control, um, may not even impact us directly, but we know about it. And that tends to put our brains into hyperdrive in ways that aren't helpful to us. And so that's where I look at this and I say, casting the vision, casting the net forward, we have got to be able to reshape our relationship to change, especially that change we didn't choose, in order to have a healthy and productive outlook about the future. So 
April, as a futurist, what makes you believe that the future is not more stability or more certainty, but is in fact more uncertainty, more unpredictability, and more unknowns? Yeah. So it's interesting. On the one hand, change, it's universal, it's timeless, it's been with us throughout the course of human history. And arguably, the pace of change has gone through peaks and valleys and sort of a roller coaster over time. If we think about points, um, you know, going back throughout human history, there have been points of massive change, transformational change. And that is everything from, you know, socially, culturally, politically, geologically, geographically, etc. And then times of not stasis, but relative, we would think of as peace and calm. So that part's not new. But what is interesting, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm known as a futurist, and what's interesting is some of my views aren't necessarily what you might think of a futurist saying in terms of um, that we're heading towards some kind of exponential future or a singularity or something like that. I'm taking a much, I would say, balanced approach here, looking at its impacts across sectors, across cultures, across levels of development, you name it. But I think the general consensus today is that not only is there more change, more change that we're aware of, and the role of technology really can't be understated. There's always been a lot of change. There's been a lot of change that we haven't been aware of. But now, thanks to devices in our pockets and tablets and satellites and all the rest, we can know about a lot more change a lot faster, whether or not, again, it affects us directly. But that's a kind of overload for the brain. The human brain was not designed, if you oh, designed is the right word, but the human brain has not evolved to be able to necessarily handle that much information about change at once. It's also, and this is where technology plays a very parallel role, I would say, in the pace of change. So one of my favorite taglines, which we can definitely debate, but um, I like to say that the pace of change has never been as fast as it is today, and yet it is likely to never again be this slow. And when you pause for a moment and just let that sink in, it's kind of exciting, but it's also kind of terrifying. And I think you know, a really easy example to point to right now in today's age is that the first industrial revolution, it took about 100 years to take root, to, to sort of run its course. That's five generations. Many people say we're in the fourth industrial revolution today. It's going to be over or it's, it's, it's sort of playing out in the span of 20 years or less. If we think about it in terms of smartphones, connectivity, biotech, et cetera. So that's where, given that there's more change, more unknowns, more uncertainty writ large, and I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just sort of observing it. That does lead to an overall environment of less stability, of less predictability, of less quote unquote control. I think we can come back to just the, our relationship with control, but more forces that can destabilize us. And I think that's where we tend to get caught up or struggle. And I think in particular this last year, 12 to 18 months, um, we've all felt more destabilized in many different ways, individually, organizationally, societally. But also as we look forward, it's not as though there's one change that we can sort of react to and then go back to the status quo or back to a steady state. We're really looking at a future that doesn't have much of a steady state. And there is no, I heard someone else put it this way recently, there is no end game. The end game is change. 
So it's kind of like, let's buckle up and get ready for this journey ahead because it actually can be an incredible, amazing, extraordinary journey if we're able to lean into it again with that kind of healthy, positive, balanced outlook. I mean, and that requires a whole new sort of radical reshaping of our relationship to uncertainty. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of those things I I spent many years, um, I like to say that, you know, Flux, the book, it took the better part of two and a half years to write. So I was writing it before the pandemic, before the world really went into Flux, but kind of two and a half decades in the making and just peeling back the layers of the onion in terms of my work and personal, professional, global, local, private sector, public sector, you know, kind of just just yanking back the layers of this onion going, why is it that we do struggle so much with our relationship to change? But also, how have we as as humans learned to deal with change, to manage change, to relate to change? And this is one of my favorite things, you know, on the one hand, every single individual, every single organization, and every single culture on this planet has struggled with change in some way, not always the same way, but in some way. At the same time, Every single individual organization, and in particular, I love the cultural piece, every culture has developed ways of seeing change, relating to change, talking about it, explaining it. And the beauty in that is that there's so much we can learn from one another. Now, in terms of why we're kind of twisted up like a pretzel a little bit today and need to radically reshape our relationship to uncertainty, it goes back to what I call our scripts. And your script you have a script, I have a script, everyone has a script. Um, One is not better or worse than the other. Our scripts are the narratives and stories and norms by which we live our lives. It, they, they sort of explain or describe the world we expect to live in. Your script starts pretty young. It is conditioned by where you're born, how you're raised, how you're socialized, you know, and again, I say this, it's not better or worse. Every culture, every society has one of these things. Um, And no two people's scripts are necessarily the same because our lived experiences are different. For the most part, most scripts, wherever you are, they're pretty clear. They're sort of dictating, here is what you should aspire to in life. Here is how you reach success. Here is, you know, the classic case is sort of study hard, get good grades, get a job, work for a long time, retire. Linear career path is one. Um, Successes at the top of a ladder is another. Um, More money, more everything is better. These are just, you know, examples. But um, what we're finding, and this is to, you know, why do we need to reshape this, our relationship to uncertainty? A lot of our scripts have a very clear path for how we kind of manage and control uncertainty and change. And what we're finding today, and I think it's not a 2020 thing, over the last many years, I would say it's been increasing over time, but it's not a brand new thing. Um, We are finding that our scripts are not very good. They're not fit for a world that's in flux. They're not what we were taught about the world and how it works and what's supposed to happen. If you do X, then Y will happen. That's not always the case these days. And we're waking up and kind of realizing, goodness, like our script is really outdated. We need a different, some people call scripts like your your program, your operating system. We need a new OS for how we relate to change. But by and large, we don't have it yet. So part of what I'm excited to do, again, individually, organizationally, and so on, is help people write a new script 
that's fit for a world in flux. But that requires going back to values, principles, foundations for, you know, where are we heading? So right now, uh, April, I want to get into the, the, the crux of your, of your book. What is flux? And would you elaborate on your theory of flux? Yeah, so um, I'll get to the theory of flux in a minute. And uh, it's, it's not heavy-handed, academic. It's, it's not a theory like that. It's very much a practical layperson's view of, so what are we trying to unpack with flux? And how do we get from A to B to C, so to speak? But just pausing for a moment and going back to the word flux, um, this is one of my favorite things to talk about because I didn't land on the word flux, you know, 25 years ago. Again, it took time and kind of riffing on a bunch of different concepts and connecting different dots and thinking about change. And then, you know, flux is this very fun word. People, they've heard of it, but they're like, oh, it's, it's intriguing. And there are lots of ways you can riff on it. But what's interesting to me is that flux is both a noun and a verb. As a noun, which is how most people know it, um, flux means continuous change. Okay. Flux is also a verb. And as a verb, it means to learn to become fluid. And I love this because I think in many ways, the world is in flux today. And we need to learn how to flux, how to become more fluid, how to not necessarily see so much as black and white, or, you know, plans are either going to go as I hope or fall apart. Change is either good or bad. But to be much more kind of permeable, much more porous as we think about and relate to change. So um, I love putting that out there as a primer because a lot of times people are like, hmm, okay, you know, I, I've struggled with change in some respect over the last, you know, year or many years. And when you put it in that context of what we're trying to get at with flux, it helps people kind of open up, like start softening your brain a little bit, which is actually a perfect segue to the theory of flux, which Candidly, um, just to to make it really simple, the theory of flux is how we ended up where we are today and how we need to get to a better place moving forward in terms of our relationship to change. And I've divided the theory of flux up or broken it down, I guess you could say, into three steps. And so just very briefly, because I think we'll dive into each step. The first step is to open what I call a flux mindset. And that is the ability to see all change, good or bad, loved or hated, unexpected or unwelcomed, as an opportunity, not a threat, and to harness its silver linings. We can come back to that. The second step, once your flux mindset is opened, and sometimes the easiest way to think of your flux mindset is to acknowledge that your relationship to change could improve, that it needs some help, needs some work. The second step is to use your flux mindset to unlock the eight flux superpowers. Now, these superpowers are the disciplines and practices and sort of the how to learn how to flux. And then the third step is to apply your flux mindset and your flux superpowers to write your new script, your script that is fit for a world in flux. So these things kind of, they build on each other, but they also then become a bit of a cycle where you can just I don't want to say rinse, wash, repeat, but the more you groove a flux mindset, the easier it is to develop your flux superpowers, the clearer your script becomes, et cetera. That's a great segue into my next question. You know, how does one's mind get set and where does one's mindset come from? What drives it? What are the characteristics? And you were alluding to it a little bit of a flux mindset and how does it build on 
a growth mindset. A lot of mindset in there, but I was wondering if you could help us understand that better. Yeah, absolutely. And here's again where I get to say, you know, I am not a neuropsychologist. I am not a therapist. My career has not been, you know, in psychology or in neuroscience, but I'm trying to bring a very lay person's view to mindset, to how we think about change, how we relate to ourselves, et cetera. So it's, I'm kind of bridging the world of psychology, but then also business, government, just how we show up in the world. Why I bring that up is that I've done this very deep dive into mindset. One thing that's really interesting is that the concept of a mindset is actually pretty new. It isn't something that's been around for centuries. For most of human history, it was just like, you have a brain. (laughs) You didn't really think about your mindset, your state of mind. You would use different terms to describe it. But over the last 30, 40 years or so, this concept of mindset has really started to gain, gain traction. And I think today, most people know it thanks to this concept of a growth mindset, which was established by a Stanford psychologist named Carol Dweck. Um, Again, it's been around for 30-ish, 40-ish years, um, if that, so fairly recent. And that, the growth mindset is very much in the context of children and how we learn. And it's looking at the fact that our state of mind, the way we think, what we think, how we feel, how we show up in the world, that our mindset can evolve as we grow and age and so forth, that it's not fixed. And so fixed mindset versus growth mindset is where a lot of these conversations get started. The difference with the flux mindset, and you know, I very much, I'm an enthusiastic believer in the growth mindset. I do not think that humans are baked at birth, and I don't think that we're static and, and immutable. I very much think that we can grow and evolve. But what a growth mindset doesn't do, and what a flux mindset seeks to add, is what do we do when things change? How do we adapt to that? How do we re- react to that? It does require a growth mindset, but it also requires a mindset that is so radically, ridiculously comfortable with all kinds of change that it can't help but see every single change, even the hard ones, as an opportunity for growth and an opportunity to do things better. That's wonderful. So, you know, I was wondering, we talk a lot about Oh, oh, is this, uh, you're telling us we have to change the way we, we, we approach change. Is this change management? I was just wondering, how does flux relate to change management? Oh, oh I'm so glad you asked. Um, this is a question I get often, or I shouldn't say a question. It's a statement almost. People say, oh, you wrote a book about change and change management. And I'm like, no, I did not. Now, I say this with all respect to change management. No, this is not a book about change management. This is a book about reshaping our relationship to change. And what's fascinating to me, you sort of, okay, that sort of makes sense, but tell me more. Um, One of the most interesting things I found in 25 plus years is that all too often, humans get their relationship to change backwards. What I mean is we spend all kinds of time and money focusing on change management, investing in uncertainty, developing our change strategies. And again, management strategies, investments, all really important. But we often fail to remember or even realize sometimes that every single strategy, investment, and decision you make 
is fundamentally shaped by your mindset. What is the baggage that you bring to the table, your beliefs about change, right? So think about it for a moment. Do you see change from a place of hope or fear? That's not strategy. That's mindset. But it will absolutely determine and color and shape whatever strategy you make. Do you believe that things will go to plan and then struggle when they don't go to plan? Most people would say that's a strategic fault. I would say that's not strategy. That's mindset, right? So I bring this up because, yes, we need change management. I'm not saying we don't. I'm saying it's very incomplete. And I'm saying if we don't address the kind of precursor to strategy, which is mindset, then we're really putting the cart before the horse. And so what I'm trying to do is bring this other piece, this other body of work to the table so that actually change management, I think of it as a booster rocket or a catalyst. I think of a flux mindset as a booster rocket or a catalyst for change management. But over the last year, we've had so many challenges with change and people really struggling with why isn't my strategy working? And I'm like, well, I'm not saying I have the answer, but I'm saying I, I think I could help to some degree um, because you're not, you're not looking at a full pie. You're not looking at the complete puzzle. And we really need to understand those other pieces of the puzzle as well. That's a great point. You know, I was wondering, you make a wonderful distinction between change management and mindset. And, you know, we get overwhelmed. We often feel disoriented. We lose our bearings, direction, and perspective. I'm trying to figure out how can a flux mindset, as you outline it, be that compass for change. Yeah. And it's a great segue because when you think about it, we set these strategies, we think we can manage and control change and then change happens and we get knocked off course. We feel disoriented. The strategy goes out the window or whatever. The way that I like to think about a flux mindset in this regard and this compass for change, so much of it is about our orientation. And I, you know, literally figuratively, orientation has lots of different meanings, but the best way to put it is, what grounds you and roots you and orients you and fundamentally what makes you you even when everything else changes if you can answer that question not only are you leaps and bounds ahead on your flux mindset you're gonna be fine when change hits it's the people who and organizations who are chasing things outside of them that they've, you know, they've identified as perhaps society has told them this matters, perhaps um, their family has told them this matters, perhaps this is simply the way things have always been done. But then change hits and it knocks them completely over because they're not clear on that question. What makes you you even when everything else changes? And so that's that compass, that kind of homing instinct or homing mechanism, if you will, um, that you can continue to come back to again and again. How can leaders thrive in uncertainty and constant change? We'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. 
The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center report responding to global health crisis by Professor Jennifer Whitner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour, a special series focusing on leading through uncertain times. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is April Rinney, author of Flux, Eight Superpowers for Thriving in Constant Change. So getting right into it, your subtitle is Eight Superpowers. Um, I'm wondering, can you identify for the audience what those Flux superpowers are? How do each of them help us see change in new ways, kind of help us develop new responses, new scripts to change, and ultimately reshape our relationship to change? Sure. Happy to. I love the superpowers. And I'll, I'll give a very high sort of um, top line description. But um, just as a, a little bit of preface, it was fun because in the course of writing, it wasn't always superpowers. We thought about what's the best way to describe these things and it was like, well, they're, they're disciplines, they're practices, they're tools, they're skills. They are all of those things. But at the end of the day, they're superpowers. Because if you can master these, and I say master, I use that term lightly. It's a life journey. You're going to be working on these things forever. And that's part of the beauty. But you are going to be so resilient. And beyond resilient, you're going to be able to look at the future, even a future full of change, with joy, with optimism, with a sense that we can do things better. So very briefly, the eight flux superpowers. Now they are, I, I want you to listen to these and, and understand them as a menu, not a syllabus. You don't have to do one before two or two before three. They are all equally valid. They are all standalone, if you will. Um, as you learn one or two, or, you know, as you learn some of them, the others do become easier. So they kind of enhance each other, but they don't depend per se on each other. It's a menu. You could, you could read each, and each, each um, superpower is a chapter in the book. So as I like to say, you could read the book backwards. You could read chapter three before chapter five and then chapter one, and that's okay um, because they, they do work together, but they are seen as kind of peers. So the first superpower is run slower. The second superpower is see what's invisible. The third superpower is get lost. Fourth superpower is start with trust. The fifth superpower is know you're enough. The sixth superpower is create your portfolio career. The seventh superpower is be all the more human and serve other humans. And the eighth and final superpower is let go of the future. I know we're going to dive into some of these, but I do also want to bring up uh, one other thing that I'll put out there because it might have already popped up in somebody's head. Each of these superpowers is mm, counterintuitive, a little bit contrarian in some way. So I'm, I'm very aware of that. And I love that. Um, it goes back to our scripts. So um, yeah, those are the eight. Well, you got right into that because I was going to say at first blush, saying to slow your pace to thrive in a fast-paced world seems contradictory, as you just alluded to. And in an upside-down world that coaxes, cajoles, and coerces you to run even faster, 
I'm wondering, why is a key to true success and growth, why does it involve learning how to run slower? Yeah. So this is a classic there. There's that sense of like, that's not what we're told. <laughs> Why run slower? And so, yeah, that, that, that tension. And in a way I like to think of um, a flux mindset often has to kind of be able to hold paradox, which this is a great example of. So think about what society typically tells us when there's more change, when the pace of change increases, what do we do? What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to run faster. We're supposed to keep up. Now, I am all for trying to keep up insofar as it's leaning into a brighter tomorrow and so forth. But, and actually I should give a caveat. Um, the superpower is not saying stop. It's not saying be lazy. It's not saying do nothing. It is saying run. <laughs> it's simply saying run slower. Why I say that is because think about what we were just talking about. The pace of change is ever faster we think, or at least it's unlikely to be slowing down anytime soon. And then blend these two messages together. One is that the pace of change is ever faster. And there's, and even if we don't think about it as the pace, think about just the, the, the torrent of information you're trying to process every day. Think about how many decisions you're expected to make every day. Think about how much you're trying to fit into 24 hours, right? There's just this relentless ever faster, ever more. And then what does society tell us to do? Just keep running, run faster, keep up. As a futurist, I am looking on the horizon and I'm saying, play these two trends out. At best, you have massive burnout and poor decisions and anxiety and exhaustion and no one really enjoying what they're doing very much, if, you know, the hamster wheel analogy. But at worst, we have a kind of disaster on our hands because when you're running ever faster, you actually aren't making the best decisions. You're running too fast to actually take in and process and absorb the information you need to make a wise decision. And so a fast decision is not necessarily a wise decision. Making more decisions in a given day is not necessarily better than making one really good decision that, that will determine a lot else. And so at an extreme, as I like to say, the biggest risk, the biggest risk we run is if we run ever faster, we run the risk of running right past life itself. And so I'm saying we need to learn how to slow our pace to be sustainable, slow our pace so that we actually can take in and filter what really matters from the info flows and everything else. And so that we actually can underscore gird our relationship with an awareness of ourselves and what we need and how we can show up fully in the world. That's terrific. It's uh, a great insight. It's interesting. It's, and I bring this up, it's, I'm, I find it in every conversation and it, it brings great joy. It also, it does, it's saddening sometimes when you realize it, this is so linked to burnout, to anxiety, to mental health challenges, um, also to things, and again, this is a loaded term, and I'm not saying it's not bad, it just it depends on context. Things like productivity and optimization. These are great things, but I always have to ask, like, for what? What's the end goal? And are you looking, I don't want to sound like egotistical human-centric, I'm trying to help build a more human-centric world insofar as that we are all able to show up as our best selves. And the ways, the ways that we've designed so many systems to make that hard 
doesn't make sense. And it's, it's just not good for the future. So April, there is a better way to rethink our relationship to productivity in a world of flux. So what does it mean to optimize for presence? And how does doing this help us better respond to uncertainty and flux? And perhaps you could tell us how one learns to optimize for presence. Yeah, it's a great question. And this is one of those interesting things where I've, I've often found myself in the role of a bridge. I am either bridging between public and private sector, or I'm bridging between the world of business and the world of spirituality and, you know, all of these different things. So in the book, there's, there's a lot of everything from yoga philosophy and various spiritual traditions from around the world, but it's actually being applied to the business world, the leadership world, the world of government, et cetera. And this is a great example because I'm very much optimization and productivity are good things as metrics. You know, we, we want to be able to do things better. We want to be more quote unquote efficient, but what I want to challenge us for, we take these terms, productivity and optimization almost as inherently good, which they're not necessarily, you can optimize for very dangerous outcomes. You can be very productive for horrible purposes, right? You can think about it, it cuts both ways, kind of like innovation, my, one of my favorite words, like innovation simply means something new. It doesn't mean that thing is good or bad or anything else. It's, it's, it's neutral on that point. Yet somehow we've assumed that more productive is automatically good. I'm looking at this saying, if, if we, what are we being productive for? What is the metric? If the metric is more widgets per hour, okay, at least we know what that is. If the metric is the more meetings I can have in a day, the more important I am as a person, I'm sort of looking at it and saying, like, what kind of meetings? Like, what did you do? It may be, may be more productive, may not be, right? But there's this relentless, again, the kind of hamster wheel, run faster, run faster. So when it comes to learning how to optimize for presence, there are lots of ways we can think about doing this. And um, even the book runs through a sort of, a series of practices, a series of exercises, a kind of hands-on book where you get to test things and answer questions and all of that. But this really is going down, boiling down to basics around like, are you able to be patient? Are you able to sit with silence? What about, have you ever thought, one of my favorites, you know, we all have these to-do lists. Have you ever thought about having a not to-do list? Just, it's a fun exercise to go through and it gets you to slow down. This also relates to our relationship with technology and whether you might take a technology Shabbat, as they're sometimes known, or micro sabbaticals, that sort of thing. So those are the kind of starting tools that you look at um, to become more present, more aware of what you're doing, rather than simply assuming that more productive means means automatically better. You know, it's funny, April, when, when I was reading the book, I was like, you know, life feels blurry, the future is uncertain. And one of the superpowers is change your focus from what's visible to what's invisible. What does that mean? And, and how can I actually do that? Yeah, this is, it's funny. People say, what's your favorite superpower? And I'm like, that's kind of like asking what your favorite kid is, but um, it changes by the week. But for, this is often a favorite superpower because it really is getting at what we're, again, what does society tell us about what we should focus on? Usually focus on what's straight ahead and focus on what you can see. And again, I'm not saying that's bad. I'm saying it's incomplete. And this plays out in many, many different ways. Everything from we measure things in terms of dollars and cents. If you can't see it in terms of money, 
it may not exist. And I'm looking at this gang, actually, some of our most valuable assets, our most valuable uh, resources are things that you can't put dollars and cents on, climate being one of them, <laughs> human relationships and love being another one. But also, even when it comes to things like innovation, and I think this is interesting in the context of government as well, we often say, you know, focus on, you're, we're kind of focusing on what's in the middle, what's focus on where everyone else is going, focus on what's mainstream. Yet I would encourage you to think about where do really new novel ideas typically come from? They come from the edges. They come from the periphery. Our peripheral vision, literally and figuratively, is actually very poor as modern human beings. Our peripheral vision back when we were hunters and gatherers and so forth was far better than it is today. But figuratively also, when we're focused only on what's front and center, we miss so much of what's going on, including where we might find new opportunities, new perspectives, new value, and that sort of thing. So this is about how do we identify our blind spots, but how do we see what we, we just haven't been looking at? It's been there all along, but we've been just so laser focused on what's straight in front of us, we've completely missed it in the process. April, when you learn to see what's invisible, how can it help us better embrace change today? Yeah, so this is, it's a great question because also I've been reflecting on it and it's a little bit, not chicken and egg, it's, it kind of feeds on itself. And what I mean by that is when change hits, things get disrupted. Things that you might not have seen before pop to the surface. I think the last year we got jolted. We were like, wow, my commute really wasn't working. <laughs> We, we were not looking at that before. We had deemed that invisible. It was just a given, right? And that's one example, but it's a good one. And, and now we're going, how did we not see this before, right? Or again, um, just a, a related example. Um, I've spent many years working on the sharing economy. And we, we have normalized the fact that on average, a car, an average car sits parked, not used 23 hours a day, more last year, but 23 hours a day. That is 96% inefficient as an asset. And yet we're like, that's normal. Of course we'll do it. Now, there's no other place on the planet that I know that we would let something like that happen. Then you put a car, but if you're an entrepreneur thinking about car sharing or ride sharing, you look at that and you're like, there's value in that. Like, other people think it's normal. I'm looking at this saying it makes no sense economically, environmentally, socially. And, but again, I look at that as invisible value. There's value in that car that's sitting there parked that we are just letting lay fallow, helping no one in the process. How do we unlock that value? So that's another example. How do we learn how to, how to, how to see change or how to see what's invisible and then make, create change out of that? But at the same time, change rattles us and makes things visible. And I feel like in that regard, over the last 18 months, we collectively have been dealt this like once in a lifetime opportunity to see what was previously invisible and either to unlock value in it or to realize, wow, that was really out of whack. We can do things so much better. So change helps us see what's invisible. And then being able to see what's invisible makes it easier to lean into change when it hits next, because you can start to see, wow, I'm going to discover new value insights, opportunities, et cetera. And occasionally, yes, I'm going to discover a blind spot or a bias or something I didn't want to acknowledge, but I have to, 
And that's a good thing too. You know, I was wondering in, in the landscape of change, April, how does getting lost help one find their way? Yeah, so this is a really good segue to the last question. And I think I can, I can answer it pretty briefly, which is, again, it relates to focus and what society tells us. What does society typically tell you about getting lost? That's not a good thing. It's sort of failure. You couldn't find your way. How foolish, you know. Or somehow that when you get lost, that you are lost or that you've had some sense of loss and or failure. It's not a good thing for the most part. And I'm looking at this saying, oh my goodness, we have that completely backwards. Society tells us that getting lost is a weakness, that we've failed somehow. Yet think about when change hits. No one necessarily knows what to do. <laughs> um, the ability to not only get lost, but be comfortable being lost. People who can sit with that and be with it and enjoy it and work through it, that is a superpower. That is a strength. And again, similar to see what's invisible, I also like to ask people, think about when have you had new ideas? When you've followed the beaten path that everyone else is on or when you've taken a detour and blazed your own trail, right? That's getting lost. But if we reframe it and reshape it and help people see that getting lost is actually one of the best things you can hope for. And as I like to say, as you mentioned, it's getting lost is actually how we get found. And that goes back to the, you know, what makes you you even when everything else changes. If you can get lost and still feel completely found in yourself, that's the hallmark of a flex mindset. April, why is it impossible to manage ongoing uncertainty without trust? And how can one go about building that necessary trust? Yeah. So I will back to kind of like, what's my favorite superpower or does one matter more than the others? I'm always like, these are peers. Um, start with trust, however, is probably the meta superpower. It is the glue, the connective tissue. It is the, the super, super power because it powers everything else as well. And it is not lost on me for a moment, just what a trust crisis we're in, right? And that's government, that's business, that's media, that's academia. We hear about it every day in the news. And yet trust matters, trust powers everything else. What I want to talk about though, in terms of uncertainty, think about who you've turned to when change hit, like really hit, you've turned to your trusted relationships. If you didn't have many of them, you were in a world of hurt far greater than if you did. Trust is the glue that holds people, cultures, organizations together. And if we're trying to navigate change and uncertainty, a situation in which no one knows what to do, you have to have trust. If you can't trust others in a situation in which no one knows what to do, it's, it's just, it's collapse. It's, it, everything starts to disintegrate. So that, and at the same time, if you're in a trusted community, and this is an organization that has a high culture of trust, this is with your friends whom you know and trust Think about when you trust each other, even if no one knows what to do, are you able to move forward together? Are you able to actually still be able to take a deep breath and, and feel calm, even though there might be anxiety all around, et cetera? Yes. And so that's where it is impossible 
to manage ongoing uncertainty because what we're doing, if there's not trust, you don't have relationships, human relationships. You don't have that glue that allows people to take the next step forward, even when no one may know exactly what to do. So how we go about building that necessary trust, there are a range of different ways, but one of my favorites, um, which I will admit we could spend the whole, our entire time just on this one superpower because it's so deep and rich, but it is what I call learning how to design from trust. So part of the problem we're faced with today is that so many of our systems and institutions and policies and procedures and so forth have been designed with a basic kind of default assumption that the average individual cannot be trusted. All else equal, if I don't know you, I shouldn't trust you, right? That means you, that means me, that means like all of us. And you think about that and you go like, wait a minute, <laughs> why? Like, I'm not saying that there aren't untrustworthy people. There are bad apples in the bunch. But when we set our default assumption that we cannot trust the average individual, we design a system premised on mistrust. And it makes it very, very hard to earn trust. If, however, we could begin to design systems from a basic premise of trust, i.e. the average individual is trustworthy, we build a completely different system. Yes, we still need to have rules for what happens when someone isn't, but we treat that the, as the exception rather than the rule. And we start to solve not just the problem of trust, but I think we start getting very quickly into issues of tolerance, diversity, inclusion, all of that come to bear as well. How does the concept of leadership change in a world of constant flux? We'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour, a special series focusing on leading through uncertain times. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is April Rinney, author of Flux, Eight Superpowers for Thriving in Constant Change. You know, your book is filled with, with really kernels of insight that are, I think is helpful for both individuals and organizations. Uh, speaking of individuals, why is it useful to treat your career as a portfolio to curate rather than a path to pursue? Yeah, so this is a great, great question. And it, it, it really gets straight at the heart of the future of work. And this um, superpower is a little bit unique in that it's, it's sort of practical, tactical. It's very much about 
your profession and what you're going to do in the world or be known for doing, whereas the other seven are a bit more um, not abstract, but they kind of apply blanket to your personal and professional life and all that. Portfolio career, basically, what we're looking at is a future of work that is much more in flux, <laughs> much more uncertain. I think we're all experiencing it to some degree right now. Not only that there are at this point, more ways you can work and earn income than ever before. We know that there's been a huge shift to remote work. We hear about this thing called the great resignation where 40 plus percent of all workers globally are considering leaving their employer this year. We're looking at automation that's going to disrupt and eliminate millions of jobs in the coming years. I mean, it's all flux. At the core though, is this fact, go back to what I was saying about the script. The script that many of us have been told or taught growing up is pursue your career path. It is, a lin it is something linear. You're going to study hard, get good grades, go to university if you can, get a good job, do that job, and retire. Linear. One step leads to another to another. The challenge is that in today's workplace, each and every one of those nodes is breaking. It, the, the future of work is not linear. It's messy. It's all over the place. And because of technology, as well as other macro forces, you know, 25% of the skills that are deemed important today are expected to not be important five years from now because of the nature of new technologies and tools and how the work landscape is changing. So this notion of a portfolio career that you create, I love it. Because what we're looking at is a shift in how you see your career, how you, how you take responsibility for developing it and helping it evolve over time. So think of a portfolio. You can think of it as an artist would think about it. What's in an artist's portfolio? Their very best works. What's in an investor's portfolio? A set of diversified investments in order to mitigate risk and have more options available. And so this is very big picture, a reframing and a reshaping of how we think about our professional development, our professional identity, and how we're going to contribute to society in the workplace. I'm wondering, in a world of constant change, how can letting go of the future help us better respond to the inevitability of flux? And what steps can we take to really let go of the future? Yeah, so this is one, probably the, I don't want to say hardest, but particularly as a futurist, people are saying, wait, you're a futurist and you're saying, let go of the future. What are you saying? This is the classic paradox, um, but also one of the most important. When I say let go of the future, I do not mean give up. I do not mean throw in the white flag and like we're done. This is all about our relationship to control. Humans like to know what's going to happen. We want to predict the future. We want to control the future. We want to have certainty about the future. And the fact is, we don't. And, you know, I hate to break it to everybody, myself included. What we seek is an illusion of control. We have never been able to control or predict what's going to happen next year, much less or I should say, we can't predict what's going to happen this afternoon or next week, much less next year, right? We just like to think we can. And when the world is in flux, the more we seek to control and predict and manage, the more miserable we make ourselves. And the more we cut ourselves off from options that may exist on the wings, but we're, we're so hyper-obsessed with being able to predict what's going to happen 
that we don't even see them. So back to see what's invisible. So this superpower, the way I like to frame it is, we need to learn how to let go of the future in order to let a better future emerge. So this means letting go of our obsession with having to control things, acknowledging that we can't. Recognizing that while we can't control whatever actually happens, we can control how we respond. We can control which possible futures we actually contribute to. So there's still this incredible sense of agency of what we can do, but it lets go of that sense that we are going to know the future. We are going to have that crystal ball and that, oh my goodness, if that future doesn't happen, somehow all hell is going to break loose, so to speak. Not necessarily. There are lots of different futures out there that could happen that aren't apocalyptic or anything like that. They're actually quite good. But when we think we need to control that one that we want to see happen, we actually narrow our vision and shut ourselves off from a whole bunch of other possible scenarios that could play out. So it really is our relationship to control and predict and and shifting that from clarity on what we can control and what we can't. And again, this goes back to your relationship to change from the inside out. What you can control is how you respond, the internal part, and then lean into the external, but don't get too hung up on that one future that must happen. How does the concept of leadership change in a world of flux? It's a wonderful question. And it actually changes a lot. (laughs) Not to say that it doesn't matter anymore. It matters just as much, but it looks different. So I think historically, people, humans tend to think of leaders as having certainty. They have the answers. They know what to do. They're at the top of the pyramid or the top of the ladder or whatever, and they oversee everybody else, but they know what to do. That's why we call them leaders. In a world in flux, in a world of constant change, that assumption goes out the window, or I should say it should go out the window, even though when we run into leadership challenges and crises, it's because we're looking to leaders, expecting them to have answers for things that no one knows what's going to happen tomorrow. When is COVID going to be over? What does our return to the office look like, right? Leaders, quote unquote leaders, maybe it's a CEO, it's a president, take your pick. It's not like they have some wisdom that we don't, that the average population doesn't have. We are all trying to figure this out, figure this out together. So what this means for leadership in a world in flux, two things I just kind of want to tease out. One is that rather than holding leaders to this metric of certainty, which candidly is impossible, in a world in flux, great leaders don't have certainty. They have clarity. They have clarity of values. They have clarity of mission. They have clarity of where we're trying to get. This goes back to what makes you, you, even when everything else changes, that is clarity. They also have clarity in this regard that they don't have all the answers and they're unafraid to say that. And they're unafraid to say the only way we're going to figure this out really is together. So that's the second point. So the first one is rather than certainty, focus on clarity. The second one is to signal to actually, and there's an element of kind of humility in this very human centric leadership to be able to say, I don't have all the answers. But I do know that if we work together, I'm going to invite you, uh, again, you being, think of that as broadly as you wish, 
inviting others in to help co-create, find the solutions, lead together. So the point there being great leaders today, and I would say this was the case even before a world in flux, but now it's more like it's in hyperdrive. Great leaders in a world in flux are those who can identify and harness leadership potential in others and bring it to bear. Recognizing that in a landscape where nobody knows what's going to happen next, we have to be able to bring as many bright minds, bright ideas together as we can. And that means that actually everybody can step up into a leadership role. So it's not leading from the top down. It's leading together. I don't want to say horizontally per se, but organizational structures do look a little bit different. And, um, you know, leaders at the top, we would say, they're in a space that is a bit more, um, they're peers, they're allies, but, but we're getting through this together. And again, this goes back to trust. This goes back to seeing what's invisible. This goes back to being all the more human. You know, all of those superpowers are packed into it in some way. That is one really clear to me way in which leadership um, is changing and I believe will continue to change in this direction. Wow, it's a great way to end our conversation. Uh, how can folks get a copy of your book? So it is available right now. Um, it's available for pre-order on Amazon and um, continuously it will, you know, even after the launch date, it'll be on Amazon and it's hard copy, it's ebook, it's audiobook. Um, I got to do the narration, which was pretty cool. And then if you want to learn more about Flux, Flux Mindset, just lots of, I've tried to make a lot of the information just available publicly. Um, that's at fluxmindset.com. Well, April, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. I want to thank you for your time, and I really enjoyed reading your work. Thank you, Michael. It's been a joy to join you. Thank you, and I, I hope this has been helpful. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, a special series focusing on leading through uncertain times with April Rinney, author of Flux, Eight Superpowers for Thriving in Constant Change. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. WFED Washington, WTOP-FM HD2 Washington, W283DG Sterling, WTLP-FM HD2 Braddock Heights Frederick. Federal News Network is the news organization of record for the federal community. We are nonpartisan, nonpolitical, and our job is to help federal government and contracting executives make informed decisions. We inform federal managers, contractors, and policymakers on issues related to the federal workforce, management, and acquisition, pay benefits and retirement, the Defense Department, and federal IT. Portions pre-recorded. Nights and weekends, we air Washington Nationals, Capitals, and Wizards, and the Navy Midshipmen. We are the Washington, D.C. home of Navy Athletics. Download the Federal News Network app on the App Store or Google Play Store. Play Federal News Network on Alexa. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Federal News Network. 
Our mission is helping you meet your mission.